welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Thank you, Abba, that we can be so aware that we belong, that you're so um, in this process of unveiling yourself to us. And we just find ourselves in your embrace in this place where we find our security in the simple fact that we are loved. And we thank you that in this place it becomes so easy to examine our beliefs and our ideas about you and maybe even let them go <laughs> as we discover Abba that is so much more than all we, we've imagined you to be before. Thank you, Papa. Amen. So we started the little metaphor. Please come in. <laughs> Hello. We started uh, this the journey yesterday by examining these two metaphors of a plan and a story. Um, and, you know, the plans. Uh, plans limit the future. The, the best plans have very few surprises. But stories unfold naturally, and the best stories have many surprises. Um, and you know, there's good, so the, the idea that God has a plan for my life, there's good ways of thinking about it, like a parent would want the best for their children. You know, the, the plans I have for you is for you to prosper you, to give you a future, but my good intentions can very quickly become overbearing manipulation if I insist that my children make no plans of their own and simply follow my one plan. And unfortunately, I think that's the extent to which we have pushed this idea that God has a plan. We've pushed it to the extent where we've created God as this overbearing manipulator that's got this one plan who only wants one thing from you and that's submission to that plan. <laughs> Maybe it's more like this story unfolding in which God says, hey, I'm inviting you to co-author this story. I'm inviting you to make a plan together with me. And we're going to work this out together. And, and so we kind of took that idea, we took it to Genesis. But maybe Genesis is not just this historic account of how God created in times past, but... It is the unveiling of how God always creates. He comes to hover over the chaos that is there. And, and, and He calls forth the beauty and the meaning that is possible from it. And, and He invites His creation to participate with Him in this creative act. Hey, see, why don't you bring forth life? <laughs> And so God's way of creation is maybe much more this whisper of desire that stands before us that says, do you know what beauty and what meaning is possible to you? Rather than this overbearing manipulator standing behind us with a plan. See, I don't know, has any of you worked for a micromanager before? Somebody that wants to know, what have you done in the last 10 minutes? How have you done it? Why have you done it without asking me? Um, <laughs> that, that kind of... Uh, now, we don't often associate 
great. It's a good one. We don't often associate great leadership with micromanagement. <laughs> great leaders are the kind of people that creates space and entrusts you with power that you might not even think you're ready for yet. That kind of creates space for you to even make mistakes and, and they're going to bear the, the, some of the responsibility for that mistakes that you will make. That's great leadership. And maybe God is more like a great leader rather than a micromanager. Maybe he's more uh, the kind of God that opens up the possibilities and invites us to creatively participate with him. And our participation is not just a passive submission. It's a real contribution as you become God's opportunity for creative living, for creative loving, for creative joy in this world. Um, so we kind of touched on those Genesis stories and I want to kind of unfold that story a bit further now um, to, uh, and maybe it leads all the way up to Jesus. I hope we get there today. But we kind of walking through how it, all these stories began. And I love the fact that the scriptures has always been in conversation with other texts <laughs> in its history. I mean, it's today that we're a little bit more nervous. We, mustn't, we must only read the Bible in the context of the Bible. But the scripture itself, even the first five books of the Bible, quotes 20 other books as validation and this reference for what it says. <laughs> so it was quite open in this conversation. Reminds me of Paul who kind of stands in front of his pagan worshippers and he says, as some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move today. It's part of our scripture. <laughs> but uh, he quotes one of their, their own poets, pagan poets, who, who imagined the God that Paul said, Wow, I can recognize the beauty and the truth in any other religion and make it part of mine. Wow. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, the, the text, uh, I, I want to kind of unfold a bit the story of how it develops throughout the Old Testament. And yesterday we touched on the idea that the oldest text in the Old Testament begins with the most violent pictures of God. And as the text becomes um, newer, they distance themselves further and further from this image of a violent God until we get to Jesus, a person that so completely denounces violence that he, he says, I'd rather suffer your violence than participate in it. And so... Either God became better and better through lots of anger counseling and whatever and, and then eventually totally repented of his anger in Jesus and promises to be good from then on. Or human perception about God and the way in which we've described God has been 
challenged and has been part of this conversation until we came to a place in the person of Jesus where we acknowledged maybe a lot of the things that we said about God was just a projection of our own fears or hopes. But here we come face to face with what God is really like. I want to take that theme and then fold it a bit better. I think there might be a bit of mist on it, and hopefully we're going <laughs> to clear that up today. Now, Rene Gerard, uh, he wrote a book, Violence and the Sacred. It's probably one of the most difficult ones <laughs> I've read, but it became famous because he, um, he showed us how violence and religion is linked from the earliest days, uh, how all the origin myths tells a similar story that there was a time of chaos but through a creative act of violence a new unity and a new order was established and that's where their gods were born and and taking those origin myths and combining them with the actual rituals ancient rituals that still plays out in some primitive um, states taking that and combine them with archaeological evidence and with the help of anthropologists and archaeologists they started painting a picture of the actual events that gave birth to human culture and at the heart of every new culture they discovered this practice of human sacrifice and uh, so the story I'm going to give it to you very simplistically, but you know when, let's make, it, let's make it current and then we take it back to ancient history. You might have a school situation, which is a whole lot of new kids and you know there's the popular bunch that kind of don't care what anyone thinks in that area, but the, the, the main group kind of just hopes that this year I don't become the scapegoat, etc. And then one day, maybe totally, hi, welcome, hi. welcome. One day, maybe totally by accident, you know, there's a scuffle between one of the popular kids and one of the not so popular kids. <coughs> and there's a bit of ridicule and bullying. And the rest of the class, who's been nervous as to who the popular kids are going to choose to bully this year, are so relieved that it's not us that we join in with them in picking that's the guy, you know, for this year. <laughs> He's going to be the one we ridicule, we make jokes of, etc. And so this kind of process by which we bring unity to a bigger group by finding a scapegoat on which we can exert almost a cathartic exercise of all my frustration and irritation. That was part of how societies was formed in the beginning, where primitive groups would often come together, but in a primitive community where there are not many rules or formal structures of how to behave, violence very quickly erupted. And the very nature of violence is it escalates. So you kill one of our family, we're going to kill two of yours. You kill two of, you know, it, it very quickly escalates to a place where everyone's going to kill everyone. 
and it's in in that place where it boils to this place of we can annihilate one another that a spontaneous solution presented itself and that solution is let's focus our attention onto one scapegoat <laughs> instead of many. I remember um, I was on something called the religious detox tour. I was ministering on this cruise and um, we stopped that morning at a Mayan island and I was reading uh, the book The Scapegoat by Rene Girard and he actually just started speaking about this Mayan myth to give an example of how the myth and uh, what the myth does to hide certain events. And so it was such a moment here, yeah, I'm reading the myth, here yeah, we stop at the island. And I get off and it's just skulls and they glorify death and they've got um, their altars, their temples still there. So let me give you quickly this Mayan myth to kind of get a grip on what, I'm, what these texts say. So something disastrous happened in their community, the, uh, and there was an eclipse coming, uh, and everyone kind of uh, thought this is the end of our world. The sun is disappearing. I mean, what has happened for us to so offend the gods? And, and so they asked for volunteers to sacrifice themselves to somehow please the gods. No one was forthcoming. Um, they build a very hot fire for their sacrifice. And, and then they found a little man in the one corner with postulates all over his face. They, you see, the, the choosing of the scapegoat is always somebody that's just a little bit different. Somebody that doesn't have all the social connections so that it makes retribution less likely. And so they, they find this one man... And they say, won't you be our hero and volunteer to be the sacrifice? And so he walked to the edge of the fire, and, but he did not have the courage, so he walked back. He did that three times, but then with the encouragement of his brothers all around him, he jumped and uh, sacrificed himself, uh, and the eclipse was gone. The sun came out, the gods were pleased, and that idea is similar in all origin myths. You go read the origin of Rome, the two brothers. It's a founding murder that begins this new city, um, this new civilization. And so we can all recognize that there's probably something true about the myth and something not true. We can recognize that, okay, there, there might have been a time of great crisis. And we can recognize that somebody died. But uh, the people who write the stories are the ones who survive. And so maybe it wasn't just the gentle encouragement of his brethren <laughs> that made him jump. But maybe it's after... He fought for his life as much as he can that he died. <laughs> um, and so the, the myths always try to, they've got this one idea. The community is innocent. 
the community is right, and the scapegoat is either a hero that offered himself, or is undoubtedly guilty. But um, he died, and we're alive, and, and that's the way things are supposed to be. And his death brings about a new unity within the community. Now, at the heart of this lies that, that myth kind of referred to something that happened in all societies. That when there was a time of great conflict, we find a scapegoat, and as we murder the scapegoat, it brings a magical peace to the community. A magical sense of, we have exerted all this frustration. And that is what, makes, what means that in many cultures, the scapegoat then becomes the God, because somehow he has brought peace. And so the myth of dying and rising gods um, is prevalent in most societies. But it is this event that, that saved our community from destroying ourselves, that brought unity, that happened in this person. And we started looking yesterday how as we see this corpse, that it awakens the most primordial fear within man, the fear of death. And we ask, what did he do to deserve this death? Uh, I mean, what, what actually happened is, if we ask, why did he die? The answer is, because we killed him. But because we can't face that answer, we change the question and we say, what did he do to offend the faceless justice, to deserve this death? And, and so our myths develop in human beings projecting their own evil, their own fear, and creating gods who are often very violent. So why do I tell you all of this? Because this is the arena in which ancient Israelite religion, Jewish, uh, Hebrew religion, finds themselves uh, amongst communities that worships many gods. And surprisingly, uh, some people don't know this, but surprisingly, Israel did not fall out of heaven with a perfect doctrine. They actually find themselves amongst communities and many of them believe the same things. In other words, that founding murder... Let me go back to that. That becomes the very heart of a new ritual. Because you see, six months later, this community is in turmoil again. Why? Because we haven't dealt with the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is, I don't know who I am, what I want. And so I look at others to tell me what I want. And as we again grasp for the same stuff, conflict and rivalry, escalates uh, and as it escalates again we we come to this point of conflict again but we remember what solved the problem the last time oh, it's a scapegoat so the hi welcome so the founding murder becomes a ritual the ritual becomes a religion have you ever seen um <coughs> apocalypse from 
what's his name? The, uh, the uh, Apocalypto. Um, what is the director's name? Mel Gibson. The, the, the passion as well. Um, but that's kind of a view of that primitive religion where we've got to have a constant supply of victims to constantly keep the gods happy. Now, Israel finds themselves in the midst of communities that believe that, and they don't begin as a community who says, no, all of this is wrong. We have found the one true God, and we're here to show you who he is. No, they begin as a pagan community who believes in many gods and who believes in the power of sacrifice, of human sacrifice. <laughs> See, the reason Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other people speak out to their nation and says, stop sacrificing your children, is because they were doing it. <laughs> okay? Human sacrifice is part of ancient Israelite religion. Um, there's many instances where, where, where I can show that. And, um, <laughs> So they be, begin out like all the other nations, believing in the power of human sacrifice, believing in many gods as well. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that it's in the book, but now I'm going to unpack it for you. You'll have to find the references. It's in Deuteronomy, I think, 31, 32. But in that passage, we have a typical pagan understanding of how divinity works. So what is the pagan understanding of the divine? See, as we continue to create all these tribal gods, we start imagining that there must be one god that's over them all. And so the pagan understanding of the gods is there's the most high god called El. You'll recognize it from Elyon, El Shaddai, Elohim, all of those things. El is not uniquely Hebrew. It's the same across that whole Middle Eastern world. El, the most high God. Around him is a pantheon on a second level of his sons. And that's second level gods all around him. Below that is another level of divine beings that might be given specific names because they do a specific, specific function. Do you know that there's a scripture in our Bible that says when El, the Most High God, divided up the nations, he divided them up according to how many sons he had. And to Yahweh, he gave Judah. Wow. I thought El and Yahweh's the one same God. The one God. <laughs> For us it is now. But how did we get to this place? <laughs> there was a time in ancient Hebrew religion where they believed in many gods, just like all the other pagan nations. Yahweh was one of many of the sons of God. And eventually Yahweh became the Most High as their story developed. 
Why is this important? <laughs> Again, it shows how God enters a conversation with a group of people, not to come and confirm that everything they believe is right, but he enters into this intense conversation so that he can undo and untwist their ideas of who he is. And so God begins this process of self-revelation. Um, and, and one of the ways, because that event of a founding murder of sacrifice is so deeply embedded within human consciousness, and that might be the very event that is the place where the knowledge of good and evil become confused, because this is an event that has such good benefits for our community. It brings such unity, but it is so evil. But somehow we've got to justify the scapegoating for the sake of the community. Now, in the midst of that confusion, God enters our story and he begins a conversation on the level that we're at. You see, sacrifice has its origin in the most satanic violence. <laughs> um, satanos, it just means accusation. Uh, and the same satanos, the same accusation that brings our community into turmoil, then focused onto one scapegoat, uh, is what brings us back to order. And this is maybe, you know, one of the ideas theologians explore is when Jesus asks the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, um, it, it might be referring to this idea that the very accusation that brings our community into disarray, into disorder, is then solved by the same satanic process but we caught up in this cycle where this Satan is both the cause of our disorder and the solution to the problem, but it is never a final solution because you don't overcome evil with evil. You don't overcome violence with violence. And so we stay stuck within this cycle until Christ comes to, to burst the cycle open and show us what is really happening so that we no longer walk over the graves of our forefathers and say, if we've done this, if we were there, we wouldn't have done this. But, but the whole process is hidden within that, that tomb. And so God enters a conversation in the Old Testament on a level that people understand. And the only language people understand is the bloody language of sacrifice. And so he begins there, and even as some of them start writing down the prescriptions of exactly what sacrifices God requires and how they should be prepared, some of the prophets starts writing, whoever gave you this idea that I want sacrifices, your sacrifices and your offerings I have not required. And even as... Some of the priests in Leviticus could write, when we came out of Egypt, the Lord gave us instructions as to how to sacrifice. La, la, la. And then you read in Jeremiah, 
I did not give you any instruction when you came out of Egypt of how to sacrifice. So you can see this conversation is developing. People who are still deeply embedded in pagan religion is suddenly confronted by a God that says, I'm going to overturn your ideas of sacrifice and I'm going to give you a totally new understanding of what it means. You see, where does it, what does sacrifice do? It's this, this idea that somehow an angry God demanded this and the peace that it brought must mean that God is so pleased with the sacrifice that if things go wrong again, we just need to again sacrifice and, and he'll be happy and and things will be okay again. And that idea of an angry God demanding sacrifice to appease his justice or to appease his wrath or his anger, that's an idea that's going to be overturned dramatically. Maybe I must give you the end game and then we'll go back and explain it. But you see, when, when John starts saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is not your Lamb with which you're going to change the mind of an angry God. This is the Lamb of God with which He's going to change your angry minds. Where He's going to reveal that you are the angry deities who demanded blood. <laughs> not God. <laughs> So the, 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 the reversal is going to be absolute. But God enters this conversation. And uh, even the, the type of sacrifices that starts happening within the temple, there's beautiful symbolic meaning in this because the priest, when he clothes himself in that pure white clothing, he puts the the law onto his wrist, onto his forehead. He, he now represents not only man to God, but he actually is known as the Son of God. <laughs> and he represents God to the people. And, and they bring two sacrificial animals in there. The one is called um, Azazel, or the scapegoat, and the other one is called the Lord. <laughs> and and um, the symbolism he is starting to twist and turn what we understand is happening because eventually the son sacrifices the Lord. I mean, what is God starting to reveal to these people that this is not just you sacrificing for me. This is me doing something for you. This is me undoing your understanding of, of sacrifice. And uh, this conversation is, as in all conversations, they move forwards and backwards. You know, a few steps forward, a few steps back. But we're kind of heading into a direction where we realize that the gods that we have created in our image and likeness is about to be exposed for what they are. 
as God becomes ready to unveil himself and unveil, uh, unveil a God that we have not created, but the God who so wants to bring us back to the core of what makes us human. And that's the, the love and the relationship that is really the inverse of the gods we've created. Um, how long have I been going? Okay. Hmm. Shall I start off on the next period of time? Yeah. Yes, please uh, do. Moses, then. Did you get it wrong? Or <coughs> did he have a blindfold on? Yeah. Or God used him in his blindness to... Because he, he gave pretty clear instructions. Yes. And so I guess that is what we find in the scriptures, some very definite, clear instruction. This is what Yahweh said. And then similarly clear instructions of this is not what Yahweh said. Uh, and so somehow we've got to grapple with that in our theology and say, uh, I think the first thing that happens is we say, well, what can I believe in? You know, what, what is true, etc. But I think... As we follow the whole conversation, we see it moving towards the conclusion that, that comes in Jesus. Um, but certainly, I can now look, for instance, to give a, a, a concrete example. In the book of uh, Deuteronomy, there's a theology that I think many of us are familiar with. And this is, if you live the right way, there will be blessings. You will be blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed coming in, blessed going out, etc. Blessed will be the fruit of your body. It carries on. All these blessings. And that's early Hebrew thinking about religion is it's about this life. You live well and you can expect God's blessing. And you live badly and you're going to be cursed in the city, cursed in the field. You're going to have sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You're going to lose all your family. They're going to be destroyed in this disaster, that disaster, etc. Now that theology, um, its intention is to tell people, live well. Don't mess up. <laughs> but after a while, an unease starts rising up. And people write psalms like, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Um, the, this teaching that everything will go well if I live well, sometimes it does. I've lived well and it hasn't worked. <laughs> and here's this evil king that does everything wrong. You know, he does all these things and he becomes president or king, you know. Whatever. There's this thing of, uh, this doesn't always work out the way it's supposed to. And so somebody writes this amazing satirical play, the book of Job, in which Job suffers all the curses mentioned in Deuteronomy. <laughs> he has sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Like every curse you read, Deuteronomy 28, Job gets it. But Job protests and says, this is not how life works. I've been innocent. And so the book of Job was a real theological 
change in their mindset to say, you are wrong, scribes. Sometimes the righteous suffers <laughs> and sometimes the wicked prospers. And I'm going to argue this as strongly as I can. So that is just one little, you know, insight to say there's not one theology in the scriptures. There's multiple theologies and they are in conversation with one another. And they're developing and they're moving together towards a point of conclusion that comes in Jesus. Now, what I want to do maybe in our next session, and we're going to open this up again for, for questions and, uh, and to explore that further. But specifically what I want to do is I want to take this idea of sacrifice and the concepts that developed about who God is, who we are, that came out of that original thing. And I want to draw this and show how in the person of Jesus, he comes to relive human history to kind of go through all those processes of scapegoating and to come to the most glorious inversion of what we understand we are, God is, and what actually happened in that act of scapegoating. And I think that's going to be the payoff. So thank you very much for having the patience to work through how these stories developed we're getting to the good news. And I, for me, the good news becomes just so much better when I understand Jesus in the context of human history. He doesn't just have a context in Jewish history. He doesn't just have a context in Christian history. He, in such an enormous way, he comes to unveil the very principles and powers by which we have built society. That's why if the principalities and powers knew <laughs> what they were doing, they would not have crucified him. But he's going to expose the very fabric of our society and uh, offer us a brand new way of being human, a brand new way of doing society. It's just very exciting. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.